Jesus' teaching in Genesareth and Banks of the Jordan, Part 12, Jesus and Abel Mahala. Next morning, Jesus left the shed under which he had passed the night and journeyed with his disciples about five hours to the south. It was almost two o'clock when they reached the little city of Abumahala, where the prophet Lysias was born. Lay on one of the heights of Mount Hermon, towers rising to the summit of the mountain ridge. It was only a couple of hours from Scythopolis, and to the west ran the valley of Jezreel. With the city of Jezreel itself, Abumahala lay in a straight line. Not far from Abumahala, and near the Jordan, was the town of Bezek. Samaria was several hours to the southwest. Abumahala was in or upon the confines of Samaria, but inhabited by Jews. Jesus and his disciples sat down on the resting place outside a city, as travelers in Palestine were accustomed to do. Hospitable people from the city used them to take them to their houses for entertainment, and thus it happened now. Some people going in by recognized Jesus. They had seen him once before, when he was journeying through these parts at the Feast of Tabernacles. They hurried into the city and spread the news. Soon out came a well-to-do peasant with his servants, bringing to Jesus and the disciples bread and honey and something to drink. He invited them into his house, and they followed him. They, having arrived there, he washed their feet and provided them with fresh garments while their own were being shaken and brushed. Then he ordered a repast straight away to be prepared, and to it he invited several Pharisees with whom he was on good terms. They soon made their appearance. The host showed himself hospitable and friendly to a degree, though he was a rascal in disguise. He wanted to be able to boast before the people of the city that he had entertained the prophet in his house, and to offer to the Pharisees an opportunity to sound Jesus. They thought that they could do better when alone with him as table than in the synagogue before the people. But hardly was the table set when all the sick of the place, all that were able to be moved, appeared before the house and gathered together in the courtyard, to the great displeasure of the owner as well as that of the Pharisees. The former hurried out to drive them away, but Jesus, turning from the table with the words, I have other food after which my soul hungers, followed his disciples after him, and began curing the sick. There were among them several possessed who set up a shout after Jesus. He cured them with a glance and a word of command. Many others were lame in one or both hands. Jesus passed his hand down their arms and raised them up and down. On the head and breast of the dropsical he laid his hand. Others were consumptive, others were covered with small, though not infectious sores. Some he ordered to bathe, to others he commanded certain works, and told them that they would be perfectly well in a few days. Far in the background, and leaning against the wall for support, stood several women afflicted with an issue of blood. They were veiled, and in their shame ventured only now and then to cast a sidelong glance toward Jesus. When they raised a fold of their veil for this purpose, the countenance disclosed bore signs of suffering. At last Jesus approached them, touched and cured them, and they cast themselves at his feet. The whole crowd set up shouts of joy and intoned hymns of thanksgiving. The Pharisees inside had closed all the doors and windows of the house. They sat down to table, vexed and disappointed, 
and jumped up from time to time to peep through the lattice. The work of healing went on for so long that, when they wanted to go home, they were forced to pass through the courtyard filled with the sick, the cured, and the exulting crowd. The sight stabbed them in the very heart. The crowd became at last so great that Jesus had to take refuge in the house until they had dispersed. It was already dusk when five Levites presented themselves to invite Jesus and the disciples to pass the night in the schoolhouse over which they presided. The guests of the pharisaical peasant took leave of him with thanks for his hospitality. Jesus gave him a short exhortation before leaving and made use of an expression similar to those he had used among the Herodians, something about foxes. But the man preserved his friendly exterior. Jesus and the disciples partook of a little luncheon in the schoolhouse. They slept in a long corridor on which carpets had been spread, their couches separated from one another by movable screens. There was a boys' school in one part of the building, and in another, young pagan girls, desirous of embracing Judaism, received thorough instruction. The school was in existence even in Jacob's time. Jacob was persecuted to diverse ways by Esau. Rebekah sent him secretly to Abu Mahala, where he owned herds and servant, and dwelt in tents. Rebekah established there a school for the young Canaanite girls and other Gentile maidens. Like Esau, his children, his servants, and others of Isaac's family intermarried with these Gentiles. Rebekah, who held such alliances in abhorrence, had the young girls that desired it instructed in the school and the customs and religion of Abraham. The ground on which the school was built belonged to her. Jacob long remained hidden at Abimala. When Rebekah was questioned as to his whereabouts, she used to answer that he was far away herding flocks for strangers. At times he returned secretly to see her, but on Esau's account she had to keep him hidden. Jacob dug a well near Abimala, the same by which Jesus had been seated before entering the city. The people held it in grave reverence and always kept it covered. He had also made a cistern in the neighborhood. It was long, four-cornered, and had a flight of steps leading down into it. Later on, Jacob's abode became known. Rebekah noticed that, like Esau, her younger son was likely to espouse a Canaanite wife, so she and Isaac sent him to her native place, to his uncle Laban, where he served for Rachel and Leah. Rebekah had established the school so far from her own home in the land of Heth, because Isaac had so many quarrels with the Philistines, who did all in their power to ruin him. She had confided the direction of the school to a man from her own country, Mesopotamia, and to her nurse, who, I think, was his wife. The young girls dwelt in tents, and were instructed in all that a wife in a migratory household of the pastoral times ought to know. They learned the religion of Abraham, and the special duties of wives of his race. They had gardens in which they planted all kinds of running vines, such as gourds, melons, cucumbers, and a kind of grain. They had very large sheep whose milk was used for food. They were taught also to read, but this as well as writing came very hard to them. The writing of those days was done in a very strange way, on thick brown tablets, not on rolls of skin as in later times, but upon the bark of trees. I saw them peeling it off and burning the letters into it. They had a little box full of zigzag compartments, which I saw shining on the surface and filled with all kinds of metal signs. These the writer heated in a flame and burnt one after another into the bark tablet. I saw the fire in which they heated the metal. It was the same as that used for boiling, roasting, and baking, also for giving light. Upon seeing it used in this last way, I thought, 
they do indeed place their light here under a bushel. In a vessel, whose form reminded me of the headdress that many of the pagan idols wore, there burned a black mass. A hole was bored in the middle of it, for the passage of air, perhaps. The little round towers encircling the vessel were hollow, and into them some part of the cooking could be placed. Over the pan of coals, something like a cover was turned upside down. It was tapering toward the top, and pierced by a number of holes. On this too was a circle of little towers in which things could be warmed. All around this bushel-like cover were openings with sliding screens. When they wanted light, all they had to do was to open one of these little windows, and the glare from the flame shone forth. They always opened them toward the quarter from which no drought came, a precaution very necessary and tense. Below the coal pan was a little place for ashes in which they could take bake flat cakes, and on top of the whole arrangement, water could be boiled in shallow vessels. This they drew off for bathing, washing, and cooking. They could also boil and roast on these stoves. They were thin and light, could be carried on journeys, and easily moved from place to place. It was over such stoves that the metal letters were heated before being burnt into the tablets of bark. The people of Canaan had black hair and were darker than Abraham and his countrymen, who were of ruddy olive complexion. The costume of the Canaanite woman was different from that of the daughters of Israel. They wore a wide tunic of yellow wool down to the knee. It consisted of four pieces which could be drawn together by a running string below the knee, thus forming a kind of wide pantalette. It was not bound around the upper part of the limbs like that of the Jewish women, but its wide folds fell front and back from the waist to the knee. The upper part of the body was covered with a similarly doubled lappet that fell over the breast and back. The pieces were bound together on the shoulders, forming a sort of wide scapular, likewise open on both sides and fastened around the waist with a belt, above which it hung loose like a sack. The whole costume from shoulder to knee looked like a wide sack bound at the waist and ending abruptly below the ladder. The feet were sandaled and the lower limbs wound crosswise with straps, through the openings of which the skin could be seen. The arms were covered with pieces of fine, transparent stuff, which by several shining metal rings were formed into a sleeve. They wore on the head a pointed cap of little feathers, for the top of which hung something like the crest of a helmet ending in a large tuft. These people were beautiful and well-made, but much more ignorant than the children of Israel. Some of them had long mantles also, narrow above and wide below. The women of Israel wore over a kind of bandage, wrapped around the body a long tunic, and lastly a long gown, fastened in front with buttons. They wound their heads in a veil, or with several rows of ruffs, such as are worn nowadays around the neck. I saw that they studied in Rebecca's time the religion of Abraham, the creation of the world about Adam and Eve and their entrance into paradise, Eve's seduction by Satan, and the fall of the first man and woman by their violation of the abstinence commanded them by God. By the eating of the forbidden fruit arose sinful appetites in man. The young girls were taught also that Satan had promised our first parents a divine illumination and knowledge, but that after sin they were blinded. A film was drawn over their eyes. They lost the gift of vision they had possessed. Now they had to labor in the sweat of their brow, bring forth children in pain, and with difficulty acquire the knowledge of which they had need. They had learned, too, that to the woman a son was promised, who would crush the serpent's head. They were taught about Abel and Cain, and the latter's descendants, who became degenerate and wicked. The sons of God, seduced by the beauty of the daughters of men, formed unions with them, 
from which sprang a mighty godless race of giants, powerful in enchantment and the art of magic, a race that discovered and taught to others all kinds of pleasure and false wisdom, all that buried the soul in sin and tore it away from God, a race that had so seduced and corrupted men that God resolved to destroy them all with the exception of Noah and his family. This people had fixed their principal abode on a high mountain range, of which they ever pressed higher and higher. But in the deluge that mountain was submerged, and a sea now covers its site. They, the scholars of Rebecca's school, learned also about the deluge, about Noah's escape in the ark, about Sem, Cham, and Japhet, about Cham's sin, and the reiterated wickedness of men at the Tower of Babel. They were told of the building of that tower, of its destruction, of the confusion of tongues, and of the dispersion of men now become enemies to one another. All this recalled to the youthful minds of the scholars the impiety of the giants on that high mountain, those wicked, powerful men, whose dealers in witchcraft, and they saw the fatal consequences of union forbidden by the law of God. Necromancy and idolatry were practiced likewise at the Tower of Babel. By such teachings were the converted Gentile maidens warned against alliances with idolaters, idle efforts, and after necromancy and the hidden arts, against the seductions of the world, sensual delights, vain adornments, and word, against all that did not lead to God. They were taught to look upon such things as tending to those sins on whose account God had once destroyed mankind. They were, on the other hand, instructed in the fear of God, obedience, subjection, and in the faithful, simple exercise of all duties devolving upon the pastoral life. They are also taught by the commandments that God gave to Noah, for instance, abstinence from uncooked meat. They learned of God's having made choice of the race of Abraham, to make of his descendants his chosen people, from whom the Redeemer was to be born. For this purpose he had called Abraham from the land of Dur, and had set him apart from the infidel races. They were told of God's sending to Abraham, that is, men who appeared white and luminous, these men had confided to Abraham the mystery of God's blessing, owing to which his posterity was to be great above all the nations of the earth. The transmitting of that mystery they referred to only in general terms, as of a blessing from which redemption should spring. They were told also about Melchizedek's being alike those sent to Abraham, of his sacrifice of bread and wine, and of his blessing Abraham. Chastisement inflicted by God upon Sodom and Gomorrah formed a part of the instructions given. When Jesus visited the school, young girls were computing a chronological table upon the coming of the Messiah. All agreed in the reckoning, which brought the result down to their own time. Just at that moment, in stepped Jesus and his disciples, a circumstance that produced a very powerful impression upon the scholars. Jesus took up the subject, then engrossing their attention, and explained to them with the utmost clearness that the Messiah was already come, though not yet recognized. He spoke of the unknown Messiah and of the signs that were to herald his coming, and that had already been fulfilled. Of the words, A virgin shall bring forth a son, Jesus spoke only in veiled terms, since those children were too young to comprehend them. He exhorted them to rejoice that they lived in a time after which the patriarchs and prophets had so long sighed. He dwelt upon the persecutions and sufferings of the Messiah was to endure, and explained some texts of prophecy to that effect. He told them to be on the watch, for what would take place in Jericho at the approaching Feast of Tabernacles. He spoke of miracles, and particularly of the curing of the blind. 
He made for them also a chronology of the Messiah, spoke of John and of the baptism, asked whether they too wanted to be baptized, and lastly, related to them the parable of the lost drachma. The girls sat in school cross-legged, sometimes with one knee raised. Each was provided with a kind of table and bench combined. She leaned sideways against the one, and when writing, supported her role on the other. They often stood while listening to the instruction given them. In the house at which Jesus put up, there was also a boys' school. It was a kind of orphanage, an institution for the education of children abandoned by their parents. There were some of Jewish parentage who had been rescued from slavery, which they had grown up without instruction in the religion of their forefathers. Both Pharisees and Sadducees taught in the school. Little girls also were received, the youngest of whom received instruction from the larger ones. At the moment of Jesus' entrance into this school, the boys were making some calculation connected with Job. As they could not readily do it, Jesus explained it and wrote it down for them in letters. He also explained to them something relating to measure, two hours of distance or time. I do not now know which. He explained much of the book of Job. Some of the rabbis at this period attacked the truth of the history therein contained. Since the Edomites, to which race Herod belonged, bantered and ridiculed the jewels for accepting as true the history of a man of the land of Edom, although in that land no such man was ever known to exist. They looked upon the whole story as a mere fable, gotten up to encourage the Israelites under their afflictions in the desert. Jesus related Job's history to the boys, as if it had really happened. He did so in the manner of a prophet and catechist, as if he saw all passing before him, as if it were his own history, as if he heard and saw everything connected with it, or as if Job himself had told it to him. His hearers knew not what to think. Who was this man that now addressed them? Was he one of Job's contemporaries, or was he an angel of God, or was he God himself? But the boys did not wonder long about it, for they soon felt that Jesus was a prophet, and they associated him with Melchizedek, whom they had heard, and of whose origin man knows not. Jesus spoke likewise of the signification of salt. He made it clear by a parable, and related that of the prodigal son. The Pharisees arrived during Jesus' instructions, and were highly displeased to find him, applying to himself all the signs and prophecies quoted by him in reference to the Messiah. That evening Jesus went with the Levites and the children to take a walk outside the city. The little girls followed last, in the charge of the larger ones. Jesus, letting the boys go on ahead, stood still from time to time, until these little ones came up, and then instructed them in examples drawn from nature, from all the objects around them, the trees, fruits, flowers, bees, birds, sun, earth, water, flocks, and field labors. In indescribably beautiful words, he next taught the boys about Jacob and the well that he had dug in that locality. He told them that now the living water was about to be poured upon them, and how perfidious a thing it was to fill up, choke up on the well, as the enemies of Abraham and Jacob had done. He applied it to those that wanted to suppress the doctrine and miracles of the prophets, namely the Pharisees. When the following morning Jesus went to the synagogue, he found there all the Pharisees and Sadducees of the place. There's also a great concourse of people. He opened the scriptures and expounded the prophets. Some of the Pharisees and Sadducees obstinately disputed with him, but he put them all to shame. A man whose arms and hands were paralyzed, and meantime had solely been making his way to the door of the synagogue. He had been so long trying, and had at last succeeded in getting a position by which Jesus must pass on doing going out. One of the Pharisees eyed the poor creature with displeasure and ordered him away. As he refused to obey, 
They tried to push him out, but he supported himself as well as he could against the door and looked piteously at Jesus, who was on a high seat at a considerable distance from the entrance and separated from him by an immense crowd. Jesus turned toward him and said, What do you desire of me? The man answered, Master, I implore thee to cure me. Thou canst do it if thou wilt. Jesus replied, Thy faith has saved thee. Stretch forth thy hands above the people. And in that moment the man was healed at a distance. He raised up his hands, praising God. Jesus said, Go home, and raise no excitement. But the man replied, Master, how can I be silent on so great a benefit? And he went out and told to all that he met. Now crowds of sick gathered before the synagogue, and Jesus cured them as he passed out. After that he dined with the Pharisees, who, in spite of their inward displeasure, always treated him courteously. This was part of their policy, that they might the more easily entrap him. He performed more cures that evening.